0: Hello and welcome to One on One, a new series that will feature different guests speaking one-on-one with myself, Christopher Gallagher. Most of the guests and featured discussion will be Celtic related of course, but we wanted to open the series with something a little different. USA 94 is a World Cup of huge cultural significance. It's the first World Cup outside of Europe or Latin America. It was a massive commercial success and laid the foundation for expansion outside of FIFA's rigid and defined World Cup borders. Our first guest on one on one is Matt Evans, freelance football writer and author of USA 94: The World Cup that changed the game. I am joined now by Matt Evans, a freelance football writer and author of the wonderful USA '94, the World Cup that changed the game. Uh, Matt has written for a number of outlets, and it's great to have you on board. Thanks for getting involved, Matt. Yeah, thanks,
1: Chris. Thanks for having me
0: on. Lovely stuff. Um, so obviously, we're on the eve of the World Cup in Qatar, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that at some point. But. You know, you, you've you written this amazing book. Uh, we talk about, on The the Cynic, we talk about USA 94 a lot. Like, just we randomly pick up and, and talk about it. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But the World Cup in general, um, what to you makes a kind of World Cup or the World Cup special?
1: Well, I think the World Cup's something that sort of grips you as a child, really, when you first sort of get into football. I mean, I remember snippets of Mexico 86 and bit more of Italian 90. Um, and I think back then it was the the only place you could see all these fantastic players playing for these, you know, wonderful teams, you know, players that you'd only seen previously in your sticker albums. Um, obviously <clears throat> as time's gone on, we've got the Champions League and even things like, you know, the FIFA computer games now where, um, you know, you can you can access these players any day of the week. Any time of the day, you know. Um, two, two of my boys—they play FIFA, you know—and and they probably know more more players in, you know, like La Liga, Serie a, and you know, <clears throat> than I do. Um, so I think the World Cup was just like, especially as a kid, it was just like a real magical event where you could see all these players playing together. You know, it was only every four years, so it was it was a real, real big event. And I think it's something that really captures your imagination when you when you're a young football fan.
0: Yeah, I, I'd imagine you are maybe the same age as me. I'd I just turned 40 in June. Are you kind of around about that age?
1: I was 42 in July, yeah, so not, not far off.
0: Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to put into context for kind of the younger listeners that, you know, there was no... You make an excellent point regarding... I don't want to use the phrase overexposure of football, but there really wasn't anything uh, in regards to, like, the Champions League or... We, we had the Champions League on ITV, which... <laughs> was hardly a kind of, you know, weekly occurrence and stuff. But do you think that kind of over, not over, again, I don't want to say overexposure because people's love for football kind of goes beyond that, but with the option and choice of so many kind of games on a weekly basis, do you think that's kind of taking the shine off these big international tournaments?
1: I think it can definitely dilute them. I mean, like you know, I was saying, then the Champions League, you know, the players you've got on show, and even, like I said, the access to, you know, Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, you know, the, the um, Serie A, you know, the, there's there's access now. You can just, you can watch a game from anywhere in the world every day of the week if you wanted to, you know. Like I said, when, when we were growing up, you had, you know, you'd have, you'd have the Champions League game, which was usually, they'd usually pick the wrong one. They'd usually pick like the nil-nil while there'd be like a 4-3 going on somewhere else. You know, as now you've got you can pick any any Champions League game. You know, you you can even watch. You know, you can watch one game. You've got goal alerts coming up, so it'll flick to another game. And you know, I like, today definitely spoil, definitely spoil for choice. Even though I think that um, football fans in in Britain are getting a raw deal with their, um, you know, watching their football on, on TV with prices and the amount of subscriptions you need to have. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think it can definitely dilute. You know, the the international football used to be the pinnacle. You know, it was the pinnacle of a player's career. It was, you know, the the pinnacle was to play in a World Cup, whereas I think now the Champions League, you know, in some people's eyes, is overtaking the World Cup. You know, the Champions League is the place to be. You want to play in a Champions League final. You know, that's the the pinnacle for some players now. But for me, like I said, I think growing up, the World Cup was always such a... It always held such a big part evolved for the World Cup and I think it it sort of as you get older you get more cynical you get more uh, you know there's other things to occupy your mind but um, I think the World Cup I'll always have a special place in my heart for the World Cup
0: Yeah I mean we've not been to one since 1998 so you know I think a lot of kind of young kind of Scottish football fans maybe don't have that kind of experience. My first kind of memories of the World Cup would have been uh, Italian ninety, uh, or obviously Scotland were in a group with you know Brazil and, and Sweden and Costa Rica. Um, what was your kind of first memories? I know you mentioned uh, eighty six, but was it the ninety World Cup that kind of captured your imagination?
1: Yeah, I remember bits of eighty six. I remember the um the hand of God and all the. Uh, all the Ferrari over that. Uh, Italian 90, <clears throat> again, it was all the, you know, the Ness and Dolma And I, I remember watching the Costa Rica game. Uh, yeah, distinctly remember watching that one. Um, and obviously there was a lot of, you know, whole boy around, you know, England and the penalty shootout and, you know, all, all the goings-on in the semifinals there. Um, and I think that sort of changed the the way people looked at football after Italian 90 changed. You know, there was all the, you know, the, the, the hooliganism, the, the stadium disasters and stuff of the 80s. And I think Italian 90 made you, I'll say you weren't proud of being a football fan before, but when you spoke to people after and said, oh, I like football, you know, I, I go to games, et cetera. I think more and more people were sort of turn, turning on to the game. Um, and like I said, then come, come USA 94, it really sort of kicked on another gear. But, yeah, the World Cups, the, the snippets, 86 and, and 90, I was nine, the summer of Italia 90. Um, so by the time USA 94 came when I was 13 and I was, you know, completely and utterly obsessed with it.
0: Yeah, that brings us on to USA. So you've written this fantastic book, The World Cup, that changed the game. Um, tell us about the book in general and, and the kind of process of, of, of writing it.
1: You know, I wrote for various websites and magazines, and I thought that the natural process was then to go on and, and write a book. It's an ambition of mine; always wanted to do it. Um, but obviously, finding that subject, the topic of the book, is obviously important because you're going to, you know, live and breathe it for well, two, two and a half years. It's been now since I, I first sent the pitch off to the publishers. Um, I like to say, I look back to my childhood, I look back to you know memories of the game growing up, and USA 94 just jumped straight out at me. You know, it was the tournament of the, you know, the, the golden generations, the, you know, the massive stadiums, the big billowing goal nets, the the kits, you know, I've always, <clears throat> I've always had a bit of a soft spot, football kits, you know, those some of those shirts, uh, you know, they'll go down as all-time classics. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so when, when I thought, well, someone's bound to have wrote a book on it, you know, it's it, it, 90s football nostalgia when being on social media is quite a sort of big thing. I thought someone's bound to have already beat me to it. So when I'd done a little bit of early research, I found that they hadn't. So I thought, right, let's get looking more in-depth into the tournament, see if I can, you know, if there is a good story to tell here, rather than just, you know, what was going on on the pitch, things that were going on off it and in, in the build-up to it. So as soon as I started doing a bit of digging the first couple of weeks, I, I noticed sort of the amount of things that had gone on during the tournament before the tournament from an organizational standpoint um put put the pitch together send it off to the publishers and within like a matter of, of days they were like, yeah let's you know go for it so that was when um <clears throat> i started reaching out to people to interview people to speak to uh, about the book and then um and then obviously covid hit yeah and that that for me writing the book was great because I was trying to get all the people to interview, and they were all just like sitting at home. <laughs> so you know, I, I'd I'd message someone like Mike Sawbery, play for the USA, and I'd say, "Oh, you'd be available for a chat?" And he was like, "Yeah, do you want to do it now?" <laughs> yeah, because they were letting no, no one could go anywhere. So you know, those first sort of two or three months of writing the book, it really sort of snowball getting a hold of people, and I think that really sort of helps kick the process on. You know, you really get your teeth into it then, getting that early success of reaching out to people and, and getting um, positive responses from them
0: yeah i mean it's w- would you describe this as like the kind of last of the old world cups because it kind of straddles that sort of new yeah. kind of you know um expansion and kind of the old ones as well
1: yeah definitely well i mean like italian See, a lot of people hold that day to their hearts but if you look at it from a purely footballing point of view there's a lot of nil nils it was quite low scoring. Um, you know, some of the stadiums were, were half full. You know, and then you go to USA '94, and it's just like it's like World Cup and technical. You know, it's 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 the you know, use a cliche, but the razzmatazz of of you know, US yeah. showbiz and sport and entertainment. You know, it all comes to the fore. Um, and like I said, I think it is the last World Cup where you're only seeing these players in your sticker albums, you know, after that Champions League, you know, kicked on a gear and then, you know, the, um, in Europe, you know, Europe, you've got like sort of Premier League and Serie A and La Liga, you know, exploded even more. So come, come France 98, you know, you, you were seeing a lot of these players on a weekly basis, you know, not as frequent as you do now, but certainly on, on a weekly basis in the Champions League and stuff. So, yeah i think you're right there saying it sort of it was the world cup that sort of straddled both eras of you know the 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 modern game as we know it today and um you know the game before
0: yeah i, I it's the first world cup that i'm sorry it was the last world cup that had the t- kind of 24 game um, or 24 team before it kind of expanding up to 32 um in, in regards to like the usa they were up against was it brazil and morocco to to get the actual world cup itself
1: yeah, Brazil and Morocco. Morocco had um, come close before to hosting it. Obviously, Brazil had hosted it before. Um Joel Haviland, who was president of um, FIFA at the time, he, he's Brazilian, so a lot of people were thinking they were going to sort of move in that direction. But after um, the LA Olympics in '84, the football events were like there was like ninety thousand people going to games. In the Olympics, and I think that really sort of opened some eyes at FIFA. That you know, that I think that the, the misconception was no one in the US likes football, and you know that's that's not the case. It never has been the case. It's always been more of a grassroots uh, sport. It's a sort of sport that families go and participate in, it, you know, at a weekend rather than go and watch. So it was translating the the grassroots sort of family. Support of the game into ticket sales, and I think as soon as FIFA realised that people, you know, were willing to buy tickets, especially to join the Olympics, um, they thought, you know, I think they've seen dollar signs here. You know, we can, we can go to, we can go to the USA. We can sort of look at it as we're broadening our horizons. We're sort of, you know, empire building, uh, opening the doors to another part of the world, and um, at the same time, make a ton of money, um, which. Which proved, which proved to be the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it was the first World Cup uh, outside of Europe or South and Central America. Like, how significant do you think that is? Because obviously we've got this World Cup in, in Qatar, and there just seems to be obviously we had South Africa as well. Was this real the kind of dropping off point for kind of expanding outside of Europe and South America?
1: Yeah, I think I think if you were, if USA ninety four been such a success, sort of. You know, the attendances with they've not been beaten since, you know. Uh, I think that if USA 94 hadn't been a success on a commercial scale, I think FIFA may have thought twice about taking it elsewhere. I mean, obviously, we had, you know, South Korea and Japan in 2002, and like I said, you know, South Africa and, and now Qatar. I think, you know, USA 94 is to thank slash blame for... Um, you know, in some people's eyes, for the tournaments going out of your traditional, um, you know, football and hotbeds, if you like, and going to, to different parts of the world. You know, I think the reasons behind having it in USA USA ninety four, and the reasons behind having it in Qatar this year. You know, it's, it, I think a lot of it is based on money, but um, you know, I, I do think with with the USA FIFA did think this is an opportunity to. Opened the door towards moving into non-traditional football in countries, um, and like I said, with the success of it, you know they sort of pushed on from there.
0: Yeah, and I was just reading about how in 1986 the the USA had had a failed attempt to kind of host it, and some of the proposals um, where that they wanted to make the goals bigger, and also they wanted to kind of change it so there was adverts like every quarter um it's funny trying to kind of translate that from from then to 94
1: yeah it was right like in 86 it should have originally been in Colombia, um and then it come it went up, up for grabs and usa put in a, a proposal to host it and their pictures of uh stadiums they're going to host games in. they still had like the gridiron markings on and things like that and you know f- to FIFA, that's a massive no-no. You know, it's fut- football, 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 anything. So, come come the the bid process for '94. You know, lessons have been learnt, and I remember that summer, all over the, like, the the press, it was all things of oh, they're going to go to four quarters, they're going to be, you know, doing this and that's going to be making all these changes. There's going to be cheerleaders on, you know, on the side of the pitch and all this and when I wrote the book, I spoke to Alan Rothenberg, he was president of US soccer. And, you know, he said, "Look, well, we knew what worked. We knew the world cup was such a huge, successful tournament. And, you know, we seen it as an honor to, to host it. So there was no way, you know, we were going to come in and start trying to make all these changes. And I mean, not that FIFA would have allowed them to anyway. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they need to make money. They need to get the sponsors on board. And, you know, it, it, I don't know if you follow us sport, but you know, the, they do have a lot of ad breaks. You know, there's a lot of natural breaks in play, which you don't get in in football. Um, and talking to, like, Hank he was he was the uh, number two at US Soccer. He, you know, he said the challenge was getting the money off these big companies without having to have all these ad breaks. And that's where they come up with the idea of putting the logos around the game clock. Um, you know, so you'd have, like, Sanyo, Cannon, you know, Budweiser, McDonald's, et cetera. You know they're getting their 10, 15 minutes of screen time per game, so they're getting their money. The sponsors are happy. They're getting the exposure, and they're not having to you know go to go to an ad break.
0: Yeah, I, and I think some of the images from the games, even now, and again, obviously, I was kind of the similar age as yourself. Uh, they bring like this sort of warm feeling over me. Like they're they're so familiar of like you know the Rose Bowl and all these different kind of huge stadiums, and and as you, as you mentioned, it's one of the most. uh uh, overall attendance of three million five hundred eighty-seven thousand, average sixty-eight thousand per game. I mean that that's incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, FIFA, they, they were completely blown away by it. You know, I mean, <clears throat> even like Alan Rothenberg said to me, you "Know we knew we'd sell the tickets, but I think even they were surprised by how quickly they sold." And I think, as well, obviously in the US, you've got the huge, you know. Um, Huge like migrant communities. There's the you know there's the Hispanics. There's the Irish. There's the Italians. You know there are there are football. There are fans that have been football. Uh, there are people that have been football fans for generations. You know it's passed down like like we like we have you know passed down from you know my love of football passed down to me from my dad. I've passed it on to my boys. You know yeah. It, it was it was the same there. You know there were massive similarities, um, but like I said, it was just. The initial thought was we need to translate the this interest that we know is here. We need to translate it into ticket sales. But with US sport fans, you know, they'll, they'll always come out and, in, in, you know, and in, in back any big event that's on. You know, you've got to look at, like, say the Super Bowl, you know, you look at any big boxing events that they've had in the States and stuff. They'll always back it, you know, a, a sport, a big sporting event. Um, and that proves to be the case. And like I said, even with the expansion of the World Cups now, that, attendance figures haven't been beaten
0: yeah um out of the you know all the interviews you've done for the book who was the who was the one you enjoyed kind of speaking to most
1: um there was a guy who very early on in the process sent me sent me a message on twitter we had all the any followers uh he didn't have his name in his bio or anything and he just sent me a message and he said them um, i may be able to help you with your book so i thought, okay I'm don't know who you are but you know let's see where this let's see where this takes me and it turned out he was his name was Jim Trecker and he works for USSF and then US Soccer and I said to him all right so what part did you play and he said well I, I literally wrote the bid oh, but put it all put it all together and put it in a put it in a briefcase and got on a plane and went to Zurich with it and presented it and I was like yeah I think I think I need to speak to you yeah you know and from there, you know his knowledge of U.S. soccer and the the sort of politics around, um, you know the, the the governing body of of soccer in the states at the time, um, and the whole process of putting the bid on the table and putting the World Cup on, you know, even before a ball was kicked, you know, and he put me in touch with some with some great people, um, and yeah, yeah, just really really interesting guy. You know, he's been he's been involved with with football in the US since like the seventies. He did stuff with the Cosmos and things like that. You know, he really real sort of interesting guy. Yeah. So just from this little a little message on, you know, on Twitter. He said to me, I don't really do Twitter. I just happen to see, you know, I put like a, a tweet out saying anyone, you know got any insight or memories of the tournament they could get in touch and yeah just from this you know i could have very easily just thought oh i don't know who that is and, and just ignore it but something just told me yeah just you know just messaging back see what see where it takes you and yeah that was quite early on that that was yeah really really interesting guy
0: brilliant stuff um one of the conditions uh of um them getting the bid usa getting the bid was the creation of the the soccer league which obviously led to the mls which has kind of went from strength to strength over specifically recently. Um, I mean, how how important was that for, for US soccer overall?
1: Yeah, I mean, they've had a few false starts. You know, the NASL it, it, um, sort of exploded and then just sort of died a death. You know, run out of money and bad ownership and things like that, you know. Um, and the, the plan to have, to have a league in the States was, was shelved for a few years because the plan was to get it up and running alongside the World Cup. But... When Alan Rothenberg came in as president of US soccer, you know, he said I have to speak to FIFA and say, Listen, we've got that much on our plates trying to get this World Cup on to, to actually try and organise and launch a, a league now would be um just wouldn't be possible. So FIFA agreed to sort of put it off for a cut for a, well, as long as possible really. And then as soon as the, the wheels were in motion with the World Cup, they were straight back on the phone then saying, Right about this league again. So it took till nineteen ninety six to get it going. Um and again, there was a fear at the time that maybe they'd missed the sort of opportunity, the, the momentum of the World Cup, but they managed to get some of the, um, USA 94 squad managed to get them back to, to play. Um, some of the, um, stars of USA 94 came and played, like George Campos and, um, Risto Stoichkoff, you know, they come and played in, in the States. Um, and i might like say, yeah, it's gone, it's gone from strength to strength, really. It was, it had, um, you know, people looked at it as a retirement home for European footballers for, for a period. But I think certainly in the last five or ten years, you're still getting, you know, the likes of has going over there and Chiellini and Bale there at, at the moment. But, you know, they're producing their own players now that are going on to play in top leagues. They're producing managers that are going to, to manage in, in top European leagues. And, the likes of a lot of young South American players that go into the US is their next step. Whereas previously they'd have gone to like Russia or China, yeah. You know they're now going, they're now going to the MLS, um, seeing it as a good, you know, a good stopping point in their career. So I think, yeah, certainly over the last five ten years, the um attitudes are sort of changing towards the MLS, Um and yeah, and it's it's only going to get bigger. You know, the, the some of the stadiums they've got there now, like Scott United came in and sell out stadiums 50 55, there every week you know i think it's certainly um it's certainly here to stay it's only going to get bigger and better and stronger i think
0: yeah and that's obviously one of the legacies of usa 94 so it's nice to see something still continuing um something else that I've, i was thinking about as well was the fact that obviously ireland uh qualified and we'll talk about them in a bit but n- none of the kind of british teams qualified scotland ireland you know wales um that kind of made it a quite a unique atmosphere quite a unique feeling for, certainly for me, do you think that kind of resonated with maybe fans who kind of were just checking out for the first time?
1: yeah, I think like i said i was I was thirteen that summer and for me it was it was great. you could just enjoy the you, you know, know the the football without all the all the stuff you get on the news and on you know in all the newspapers, obviously social media wasn't around at the time, but, you know, all the usually all the stuff about England, this, England, that, you know, it was great not to not to have any of that. You know, right, right in the book, I've had people like reach out to me and been like, English football fans saying, oh, it was a rubbish tournament. Um, don't remember anything about it. Uh, terrible tournament, terrible games. Uh, all I remember is uh, them D- Diana Ross in the opening ceremony, Joe, Pen, they list about ten or fifteen things that they remembered from a tournament that apparently <laughs> they don't remember anything about. So, but for for me, it was great. You know, you could just watch and enjoy it without having to, you know, think about oh, who's playing here. You could just literally enjoy it, and it gave gave people an opportunity to like adopt teams as well. Like I adopted the USA as my team. I had the denim shirt with the right. with the stars on the stuff. You know it gave people an opportunity just to sort of, you know, adopt the team or, or I know a lot of, a lot of fans, you know, start talk to to my Island. Yeah. Cause they, they recognize some of the players from, um, you know, their, their, um, their own teams and stuff. So yeah, I, I just looked at it as, it was a good thing.
0: Um, you, you mentioned obviously the USA. Was there a, was there a fear that, you know, they might not get out of the group?
1: Yeah. I think that, that, they said they needed, they needed to get out of the group because, you know, they were hosts of the tournament. They, the, the goal was get out of the group. Um, I think Italia 90, they got battered in, in every game. You know, they, they'd sort of... A lot of the players were just college players with very little experience. Um, those four years, a lot of these players had gained, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 caps. Yeah. And I think they've seen that real sort of difference in the... Um, professionalism of the players. Um, there was some players that were playing in, in Europe, like John Hawks and um, Eric Ronaldo, Kobe Jones. They were coming back and instilling some, you know, European club professionalism. They, they set up a training base uh, for the players where they, they were based for like 15, 16 months, where they played numerous um, friendlies and tried to build this like club mentality. I think if they'd have bombed out of the, of the groups again, you know, I think that they certainly wouldn't have, a lot of people wouldn't have bought into football as being something that can actually progress in States, but making it out of the groups and then giving Brazil a good game on the 4th of July, you know, th- these players went, they become celebrities, they were on the Tonight Show and, you know, I spoke to Alexi Lalas and he said in the, in the lead up to the tournament, he was on an aeroplane and there's like an old lady sitting next to him and she said, oh, what do you do for a job? And he was like, oh, I'm a football player. And she was like, no, but what do you do for money? He's <laughs> like, no, I but I play football. That's how I make money. That's my job. And she was like, oh, you can actually make money from being a footballer. And he was like, yeah, I can. You know, and within, within months, he, he was on the front of all the magazines and TV chat shows and signing to play in Serie A. So yeah, I think, um, there's there a lot riding on it. There's a lot, the pressure on them on their shoulders, you know, to, to get out of the group and and get to the knockout so I So they give Brazil a game. I think they'd have been if they took it to penalties. I think that was their only chance of beating Brazil. But yeah, you know, they, some great memories for for the US uh, in that tournament. Definitely.
0: Uh, you know, I was looking at you know doing some research, and there are so many stories that this World Cup, and obviously they're they're, they're all covered in the book, um, but. Just so many kind of individual kind of strains. I was thinking about, you know, obviously uh, Escobar with Colombia, Maradona, uh, you know, even just Bulgaria, how well Sweden did. Like the the list is endless. What What's the kind of thread or the, the kind of story that you always come back to, the one that you always kind of stands out for you?
1: Well, I think when I was doing the research for the book, it was well, I said, finding all these separate stories that were going on. That's what made me realize that I didn't just want to do a day by day account of, you know, on on this day these teams played and this day these teams. I wanted to do, I wanted to focus on, you know, I didn't cover every team, but I wanted to cover, you know, the main, the main stories. And I said, it's just, I found it really interesting that one of the stories I always go back to is just literally how the US got to, got to host the, you know, the, the tournament, all the politics behind that, how, you know, US the USSF at the time was literally run by a bunch of volunteers, just a bunch of guys who liked football and how they got given the World Cup. And then suddenly it's like, okay, you've now got to put on the biggest show on earth, you know, just by a bunch of guys who were literally doing this for their love of the game and the internal politics and how, you know, US soccer had to go from being a voluntary group into like a professional organisation literally overnight. Um, you know, even before the tournament, you know, was, balls kicked in the tournament, there's a real threat that, you know, the World Cup could have been taken away from the US. And uh, Germany were in the, in the wings waiting to take it on. And you think, you know, the knock-on effect that would have had on, on the game, not just in the States, but I think, you know, on the worldwide game in the last, you know, 30 years or whatever. So. Yeah, like I said there's a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of things going on off the pitch. You know, there was things happening during the tournament. Obviously, the OJ uh, OJ Simpson car chase, the world's slowest car chase. Um, like I said like Escobar, you know, his murder. That tournament was still going on. Yeah, you know, Maradona, the the you know the story behind him getting back into the Argentina squad, scoring. Argentina are looking good again. Next thing, he's failed the drug test. He's out. You know, all these things that are going on, you know, during during tournaments, you know, that you don't sort of see those sort of things anymore. Um, the only thing I could think of similar to it was like France 98 with Ronaldo, with the yeah. Willie he, Won't You he Play in the final, you know, to have all these sort of storylines going on uh, while, while, the, while the tournament's on, you know, I think that's really. Uh, that was something really interesting to sort of dig into when I was doing my research.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a sort of, I think about like these sort of American soap operas, like where wacky and weird things happen. And it's just like there are so many threads uh, throughout this entire tournament. Um, but what, do you know what else I was I was kind of looking at? Like how tight the groups were like a really, really competitive group, with exception, I think, uh, Morocco and Greece don't get any points, but every other group is really, really tight and really competitive.
1: Yeah, I mean, they brought in like the three points for a win, um, which, you know, <clears throat> I think as we know now, so important, you know, you don't want to lose your first game because, yeah. you know, you really sort of got your work out then to get out of the group, but with the, um, you know, third, third places, so many of them qualified as well, there was a lot to play for, you know, all the way, all the way through, which had, which led to like you said tight groups. You know, some some um, you know, get tournaments went to the wire. Uh, sorry, tournaments groups went to the wire. You know, there was there was. I think the 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 rule changes. The you know, making it more attacking. The offside rule change. There was obviously no back passes now. And uh, like I said the three points for a win. You know, FIFA realized that they needed goals. You know, us us audiences their main thing about football is not all that happens a team can win 1-0. You know, they're used to high scoring, you know, games, especially like to the NFL stuff. So, we've realised after the low scoring Italian 90, they needed to really sort of try and <clears throat> encourage attacking football. And um, yeah, I think it, it did lead to some uh, really, really interesting sort of group setups. Like, like the USA, they, they beat Colombia and it was like, well, they're literally through now. They drew with Switzerland and they beat Colombia, so they was they was good as through. And then they lost to Romania. And they were hanging on for a day, you know. They, they scraped through it in as one of the third places. So yeah, some really um, really interesting groups, definitely.
0: Yeah, I'm group E with um, with Ireland. Like Italy having to scrape through as one of the, the third, having the exact same record as Ireland, but obviously Ireland Ireland beat them. Um, did you get a lot of kind of um, that Ireland Italy game? From, from obviously I've got fa- my family are a kind of Irish descent and stuff and that was such a huge thing for us watch, sitting around watching the Ireland Italy game is that something that you've kind of got a lot of feedback about?
1: Yeah well, I think um, the the original thinking was it's going to be a 50-50 split in, in Giant Stadium you know there's a large um, migrant communities that both Irish and Italy in, in that area so it's going to be you know half, half Ireland half Italy it's going to be a split and then when the players come out of the tunnel, it was literally 70-30 Island. You know, there was Irish fans were, were buying any any ticket they could get their hands on, you know. Um, and The players said, you know, when they come out of the tunnel, they sort of walked around and they just seen seen all the trickle and everything and thought, wow, you know, the, we, we knew that the fans were going to travel. But, you know, in, in these numbers, it was like, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, and, and going back to like the when it was being organised, I spoke to Alan Rothenberg and he said that, one of the biggest um things on the budget was security because at one time England could have qualified north korea iran iraq could have all could have all qualified at one point, so he was saying you know England got the hooliganism, and obviously u s have had um, <clears> them <throat> you know certain political issues with um the other countries so he said you know we, we were thinking God, this could be you know." We could have. We don't want a major, you know, incident on our hands. And he said, when none of them qualified, there was sort of like a sigh of relief, yeah. you know. And he said, we looked at it and thought, well, who else could cause any issues? And it was like, the, oh, the Dutch—they've had Hulken problems. And they said, oh, well, what about Ireland? Because you know it's close proximity to England. You know that what are their fans like. So he said that they were our two concerns. He said when Ireland in the Dutch turned up, he's like all they wanted to do was drink, have a party and enjoy themselves. You know, yeah. so they were two of the best sets of fans that, you know, that were there. Uh, so he said, yeah, any any concerns we had were just completely gone. You know, he said they were everywhere they went. They were, you know, uh, they were popular. Um, but yeah, that game was just, I, I remember watching it. Um, we had an, an Italian family living in my street. And then I remember like, you know, giving, giving their kids some stick <laughs> after it. And um, yeah, it was such a, such a great, a great start to the tournament. It was on like the second day. It was such a, you know, such a really good, good way to kick off the tournament. Yeah,
0: yeah. And obviously, uh, Paddy Bonner was the, the the Celtic goalkeeper as well. And we had so many kind of ex Celtic players playing in that team. And also we had the Ray Houghton from Castle Milk, which is just round the corner from here. So really, kind of um, just a lot of connections with Glasgow. Um, oh, I was just obviously it's the first time Russia had appeared uh, in the World Cup as Russia. First time Germany had appeared in the world cup as a, as a unified germany so there was lots of kind of you mentioned obviously about the, the teams that could have qualified there was a lot of kind of um political kind of uh, seems running through it as well
1: yeah i think there was a lot of change going on certainly in europe um, early 90s like i said the reunification of germany and the sort of eastern bloc sort of um splintering off into into groups um yeah i think like i said like i said then about the likes of iraq and iran and you know like I said if they if they'd qualified they could they could have all gone through in it sort of the last set of games you know they could have all qualified, and you think what a different sort of tournament <laughs> that would have been you know um but yeah, I mean like to France, you know that they, they didn't make it um that there, there was like if you, if you actually look at the final the final night of qualifying in in Europe, you know there was so many so many things that could have happened so many storylines obviously like Wales, we missed out um I said France. France missed out. There was, you know, it, looking now. You think France? You know, they're probably they're going to be one of the favourites to win it again. Um, you know, you thought thought of them missing um, missing out. Um, it was huge. You know, uh, like the Africans. You know, they they're more represented now. You know, and I think their the performances of actually Cameroon in in Italia ninety in, in Nigeria in ninety four, and then obviously you've had like Senegal in two thousand and two, Ghana. You know, you can see how how that's you know, how African football has progressed over the last thirty years. Um, yeah, I think USA '94. There was just so many so many different storylines, like touched on going like threaded throughout the tournament. You know, even from even before the ball was kicked with the opening ceremony. You know, all the way through to you know the final the final kick in the tournament. You know, oh, yeah. it was, for me. It was I think that's why it sort of stuck. Stuck in my mind when I come to write the book, it was, it was always there. USA '94 for me. It was always, you know, huge, huge part of my upbringing as a football fan.
0: Yeah, I mean, it started with a miss penalty and it ended with a miss penalty. Diet from Diana Ross to Roberto Baggio. Um, I would always kind of highlight how great it was for like kind of playmakers or number tens. Uh, you know, Roberto Baggio, uh, Valderrama, Maradona. and know obviously Maradona's World Cup was cut short, but you know Stoichkov and Hadji it felt like it was the one of the last kind of tournaments where it was about kind of individual kind of uh, expression now maybe that's just because i was 13 at the time and um, you know there has been plenty of individuals kind of made world cup moments throughout but it just felt like a big collection almost every kind of team had like a number 10
1: yeah definitely you won't have a bigger collection of iconic number 10s you know ever again i think the game has sort of changed now to, you know, how teams play. Um But even though I said that, that you had the, you know, Hadji, uh, Stoichkov, you know, Maradona, those sort of guys, but then you had the collectives. you know, you had the likes of Sweden who, you know, okay, they had the likes of Thomas Broline who, who probably played that role for them, but they were all about the sort of collective. um yeah. uh, Romania, you know, they started some great players, you know, in that side, the likes of um, Joan Lopescu and... um Dimitrescu, you players like that, you know, but the likes of Hadji and Stochkov—they had the big names and they had big moments in the tournament. You know, Stochkov's free kick against Germany, Hadji's—you know, was it a shot? Was it a cross? If you're lucky, did have a little walk up. Yeah. Um, you know, they did have their big moments. In Maradona, okay, the—you know—the the drug test, but the goal and the wild celebration into the camera and stuff. You know, they were iconic players. And they had iconic moments, you know, during the tournament. Baggio, you know, it was sort of written that he was he was going to win Italy the World Cup. You know, they struggled out of the groups, they got into the knockouts, and he literally carried mm-hmm. them on his the shoulders all the way through to the final. Had his own injury problems, and you thought the way, you know, the way it's written, Baggio's going to going to win these the World Cup, and it's going to be his World Cup as you know, eighty six was Maradona's World Cup. This is going to be this is going to be Baggio's World Cup, and I suppose in a way it sort of is, but for the wrong reasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember, I'm sure you were the same, watching this World Cup with my dad, and you know, watching him versus Spain, you know, he was kind of, again, just probably the best player on the pitch. But Italy, like Italy against Nigeria, they were kind of really, I think it was about the 88th minute, and then like the 102nd minute, they kind of really, really struggled. It's, It's a World Cup that Italy were, obviously they got to the final, but Italy kind of struggled to the final, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously they lost to Ireland first game and then second game with Norway, you know, they had had goalie sent off. That's right. um, And Baggio was was substituted um, because Saki said, you know, I needed players that were going to be able to run for 90 minutes. You know, Baggio had his injury problems. You know, I couldn't, I I, I thought, you know, I, I can't put that on his shoulders, he might you know, he might get injured again and that's his tournament done. And they managed to sort of pull a result out there against Norway and sort of stumbled away through the groups. And it wasn't as if, oh, they got stronger and stronger as the tournament progressed. They sort of just did enough. I mean, and it was all down to Baggio, really. Like I said, the, the Nigeria game, like, you know, Zola had been sent off and, you know, they were they were going out. You know, they were, go, they were going out and in Baggio, you know, he literally just like, give me the ball. And, you know, and, and got on... Like, people say, oh, Baggio's missed penalty, cost the World Cup. And it's like, well, without Baggio, they wouldn't have been anywhere near the final. There wouldn't have been, you know, there wouldn't have been a penalty to take, you know, w- without Baggio. So, um, you know, I think you've got to try and look at what he did for Italy, you know, in that tournament. Like I said, without him, there wouldn't have been a final from supplying.
0: Yeah, uh, of course. Obviously, the, the final went to, to penalties. The final itself was a bit of a kind of war of attrition. You know, nothing really kind of... I think we were looking for a really kind of exciting final and it just kind of, two teams cancelling each other out, really.
1: Yeah, I think only when you, when, when I was looking into, you know, when I was researching the book and looking into it more, the, the amount of travel involved. Of course. You know, talk, talk about like Qatar now. now, I was reading something before, someone said you can get around, you can get around sort of all the stadiums in the space of like 45 minutes, you know, as a crow flies. So, you know, the states. they was you traveling coast to coast, different time zones, and you know, it's something they're going to experience again in Qatar is the heat. You know, it, US had a they had a heat wave across the country. You know, they were playing games in in California in Florida, midday kickoffs to you know, to, so the um, European markets could could tune in and watch them at, at a reasonable hour. And I think at the end of the tournament, I think it just took so much out of the players. It's just a shame that they couldn't have maybe had another three or four days rest, you know, and, and then had the final. I think we'd have seen a completely different game, but, you know, there was the domestic leagues were kicking off and, you know, when I spoke to Alan Rothenberg, you know, he said that everything, we had a month, everything had to be done in that month, 30 days, and that was it. So it's a shame, really, looking back, it would have been nice if they, you know, it, it could have it could have had, you know, a legendary final, I think, it, you know, it's still an iconic final, and the fact that, you know, Baggio's penalty missed and stuff. But, yeah, it'd just been nice just to give the players an extra few days rest and, you know, maybe kicked it off at a different, you know, maybe a bit later in the day so it wasn't as hot on the pitch. You yeah. know, you may have seen a completely different final.
0: Yeah. Um, what would you, would you say, before we kind of move on, what would you say would be your kind of key moments from that World Cup? Have you got a favourite goal, favourite kind of uh, performance?
1: Uh, also, the Haji, um, the first game, Romania's first game against Colombia. You know, Colombia were tipped as you know going to be one of the uh, favourites. They got you know the curse of Pele, saying you know he was he picked them to, to win it. I think his performance, I'd seen bits of Haji because Romania qualified out of Wales group. Of group, so I'd seen I'd seen him absolutely pull Wales apart in one of the qualifiers. Um, so it was great to see him on on the on the on the big stage. Um, Nigeria, you know the Yakini when he scored and going into the net and you know grabbing hold of the net and screaming, you know Eric when all the free kick for the USA against Switzerland, you know I watched that again the other day and it's like you know postage stamp. Um, So yeah, I think just some real sort of memorable goals and, and players really Um that I said, like Hadji, you, you know, someone says to me now, like Hadji, it's like, oh, I just, you just transport straight back to, you know, to that summer and, you know, uh, Stoichkoff again, his free kick against Germany, you know, just for, for, like I said, people that have said to me, oh, nothing really happened in that World Cup. If you actually, if you actually go on YouTube and watch like, uh, you know, the goals of the best goals of the tournament, you know, you actually, you forget about it you know, how good some of them are, even one like Romario's against uh, Netherlands, he sort of caught this volley, it was just like inches off the floor and it just sailed into the corner. You know, so many, so many great goals from some, you know, great players. Like I said, I don't think we'll see such a collection of iconic players in, in a tournament again.
0: Yeah, and of course Ronaldo was on the bench, but didn't quite get on. So, you know, he'd obviously make his uh, his big stake in the the next World Cup. Um, the Qatari World Cup, um you know, we, we've talked about how, you know, USA 94 kind of laid the foundations to to take the World Cup outside of Europe and, and South America. What are your feelings around this World Cup?
1: Well, I was speaking someone about this at the weekend and they said, saying, oh, what, what do you think it's going to be like? And I said, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. And I said, I don't think anyone knows because it's, it's in Qatar, which obviously you have never had a World Cup there before. Um, it's in such a small country, so... There's not going to be any sort of traveling players. are sort of going to be and fans are going to be sort of on top of each other. Um, the time of year it is, you know, winter World Cup we've not experienced before. The fact that it's in the middle of the season, you know, some people are saying that could be a good thing because usually a World Cup is at the end of the season when all the players are, you know, what's going holiday and have a break. Whereas now they're sort of hitting their stride. They're, they're sort of, you know, they've got, you know. 15 games under the belts for their for their club, and now they're they're raring to go into a World Cup. So, yeah, I think obviously there's all the stuff going on, you know, off field, the off field stuff. You know, there could be there could be some protests. It could be a lot of stuff going on off the pitch. Um, which, again, looking at USA '94, a lot of stuff happened off the pitch. This could be a World Cup where, you know, there's some big storylines happening off the pitch. Um, but yeah, it's. I just don't think anyone knows what's what's going to happen. I think it's sort of crept up on a lot of people as well. Yeah, you know, you focus on focus on their um, domestic teams. There hasn't been that sort of build up to to a World Cup. You know, we, we normally get. Um, you know, there's here in Wales, there's all fan zones planned, and you know, for the Wales game But I mean, looking out the window today, you know, you're going to need an umbrella with you. So, yeah, I just honestly don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know. You know, you'd think the usual suspects will be, you know, favourites to win it, but you might get a surprise package. You packages. Don't know. Honestly don't know.
0: How are you expecting Wales to do? I
1: think. I think we can get out of the group. Um, you know, people say, you know, it's it's gonna be between, you know, Wales in the US for the for second spot. You've had the you know, the talking heads on talk sports saying, Oh, well, like England have probably got, you know, probably put ten teams out that could beat Wales. And you think, well, here you go again, you know, this is what you do every four years, every, you know, yeah. and then, you know, in a few weeks' time, you'll be all on Talk sport crying. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think there's any reason why Wales and the US can't both go through, you know. Um, yeah. They're playing each other first, um, which I think will be a tight match because neither will want to lose their first game. I think they'll both be looking at it as they'll take a point and then, you know, try and, you know, take the chances against England and around. I think, I think Wales can certainly get through, get through the group. Um, if everyone's firing, Gareth Bale said he's fit. Hopefully, Joe Allen will be, will be fit to play. Um, and then, like I so say, you get to knockouts, anything can happen. I mean, you go back to uh, Wales's first Euros, you know, getting all the way through to the semis, it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was stuff of dreams so I think when you get to knockouts anything can happen you know who you get drawn against you know if you can manage to top the group you usually get a you know an easier game in the the first round of knockouts but then you usually get one of the favourites usually finishes second in the group so there's usually a team to avoid so yeah certainly think Wales can get through the group and I think that'll be for the first World Cup since 58 I think getting through the group should be a great achievement.
0: Absolutely um Matt this has been absolutely tremendous uh, USA 94 the World Cup that changed the game is available now uh, we'll certainly put out uh, links to the where you can get it and stuff but it's been tremendous thanks very much for getting involved
1: sir cheers thanks Chris thanks for having me on it started with a feeling and a dream was born into you it's written in your eyes you hope you'll see the dream come true oh
0: Thanks to Matt Evans for that great insight into USA 94. Uh, his book, USA 94, the World Cup that changed the game, is available uh, whenever you get your books. Uh, check it out. It's really, really good. Um, this has been episode one of One on One. Hopefully we'll have plenty more coming up as we go through the season. I've been Chris Gallagher, and we'll speak to you down the road. <laughs>